church. It's good to see you. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to get started here in just a moment. Uh, just a quick word of thanks for all who helped out with the men's breakfast and then the ladies' brunch. Um, consider those two really important events this last yesterday and then the Saturday before. If you're not aware of that, in the summer we do once a month get together and do a men's breakfast and then a ladies' brunch. And you can go to our website or look on the app under events and it'll show you the dates for the next ones. And you can also uh, click on that to register if you want to bring something. So if you've got like that secret casserole you want to bring, that's how you do that. But just want to say thank you for all who've been hanging around to clean up and to, just to get that all organized and, and together. It's easy to get people excited to show up for breakfast. Uh, but then but then people split quickly and there's been people who've been hanging around helping our hospitality our special events team get things cleaned up so thank you for that that's just a, a huge expression of your servant's heart and just want to tell you you're the unnamed unsung heroes thank you for that all right so we are in um we're going to be in second peter chapter three to get started this is going to be a little bit different today so this passage that we'll read at the very beginning um it, it's the last few final words of Peter's second letter. So we're at the end of the series, and, uh, and normally these words would be like our primary text for the day, and we'd spend almost all of our time in these verses, but really this is going to be a launching pad. Um, I told you all along that um, as Peter, in both letters, has addressed the Bible, that we would come back at the very end and go back through his teachings on the Bible and do just one Sunday dedicated to what Peter is teaching us about the scriptures themselves. So that's today. Uh, so we are going to start in uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 14, and kind of read the end of the letter, but that's going to send us back to 1 Peter and 2 Peter and other passages. Uh, a couple of things. So as we talk about the Bible, let me give you some historical context. At the time that this is written, we're in probably the mid to late 60s A.D., and, uh, and at this point in time in history, the Old Testament, as we have it today, uh, was fully canonized, fully solidified. Um, it was considered to be um, holy scriptures. Okay, so from Genesis to Malachi, even though the ordering may change um, in the Jewish Bible, it was considered to be canonized, done. So at the time that Peter's writing these letters, the holy scriptures they had access to were the Old Testament. At the same time, and we'll see this today, the apostles, um, those who had um, experienced Jesus and seen his resurrection, were beginning to write like letters and documents and circulate those documents from church to church. Like Ephesians was a letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and after they read it, they said, man, this is really good. And so they would send it or send a copy of it to another church so other churches could be edified and encouraged by Paul's words, for example. Okay, so the New Testament, as we have it today, was not put together at this point in time, but the writings were circulating. And that's what Peter's going to refer to in just a minute. It wasn't until the late 4th century A.D. that the New Testament gets canonized, if you will, and solidified and put together with the Old Testament as the Bible that we have today. So at the time that Peter's writing this, let's keep in mind, He's writing this more than likely from Rome or a prominent Roman city. He's writing it to Christians who have been exiled because of their faith in Jesus. They've been kicked out of town and scattered in the rural communities of Asia Minor. So he wrote his first letter to them, and now he writes a second letter. By the time of his second letter, the persecution, especially in Rome, was starting to heat up. 
and Nero was really starting to let loose some of his vicious uh, persecution against the Christians. And so it hasn't gotten better. It's actually gotten worse by the time he writes his second letter. Paul is fully, I mean, Peter, excuse me, is fully aware that he probably won't be around to write another letter. We looked at this recently where he said, hey, guys, my time is at hand. You, you may not get another letter from me. And so we can begin to feel the angst, if you will, behind Peter's words to leave them with some, something that matters, something that will anchor their soul, something that will carry them through, something that will encourage their hearts, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. Three questions that I think are important to ask at the beginning before we move into our sermon today are this. First of all, how accurate is today's translation of the Bible? We've been saying, Peter wrote this. And so as we read it, um, how accurate is it? How close is it to the actual words that Peter wrote? There's really two issues there. One is the idea of copying copies. So we have to think about that. How faithful are these copies we have of these original documents? If we don't have Peter's letter in hand and all we have are copies of it, how accurate or reliable are those? And then second of all, it wasn't written in English. So there's another kind of hurdle to cross, pulling the original language into English. So how accurate are the words that we're attributing to Peter? How close are they to his original words? And you'd apply that to the rest of the scriptures. So how accurate is your Bible? The second question is this, what does the Bible say about itself? So before we get into like our statement of faith or church doctrine or historical perspectives on the Bible, what if we just let the Bible talk for itself and, and make its own claims and then decide whether or not we, we believe them? So that's a second question that we want to think about answering today is what does the Bible actually claim to be? You may have grown up in a home where the Bible was highly valued and revered and maybe even to the point of like it was the good luck charm out on the table to keep the evil spirits away and and so you have that perspective on the Bible, or you might have come from a house that wasn't a Christian home, and so the Bible's confusing to you. You don't know what to make of it. You don't know where to start. You hear, you hear people referring to it, and you're like, I don't even know how to find that Bible verse you just quoted. And, and so it's just this kind of foreign idea to you. So let's, let's answer that question today. What does the Bible say about itself? And then finally, this question that you'll have to answer for yourself, I can't answer it for you, is, is this actually a supernatural work? Is it more than just the work of human hands? Even if we could prove without a shadow of a doubt that the words we have today were Peter's words and Paul's words and Moses' words, it still leaves us with whether or not we believe it. Right? So it, it could still be a very accurate copy of a fictitious work or a mythology. And so those are the three questions that we're going to ask as we step into uh, the Scripture today. I'm going to start in uh, 2 Peter, as I mentioned. Uh, chapter 3 and verse 14. This is the end of his letter. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, um, the these things that we're waiting for were mentioned last week, the new heavens and the new earth. This waiting with patience for God to make all things new again. So if that is something you want to hear about, you can go back to last week's sermon and hear what these are. But he says, so since we're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of the Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul 
also wrote to you. So now he's beginning to reference another biblical author, Paul. According to the wisdom given him. So as you think about Paul's writing, he wants his audience to think about Paul's writing as more than just Paul's wisdom. He was more than just a smart dude. He was pretty smart. He's well-educated. He's saying, no, he actually had a wisdom given to him. Something supernatural was happening in Paul that he wrote to you. So according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. So again, he's not just referring to one letter from Paul at this point in time. There were multiple letters Paul had written, and now he's referring to the writings of Paul. So as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them and these of them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And so now here you got Peter kind of selling out Paul. He's like, I know you've read some of his letters, and, and some of the things in them are hard to comprehend and understand. That Paul, man, he, he'll write some real tricky things, which is kind of ironic, because Peter himself writes some things that are hard to understand. But he's referring to Paul's letters as something of value, something to pay attention to. And then look at what he says. He says, they're hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. So if you'll remember from the last two weeks, Peter has been warning against false teachers and scoffers. And so now he's referring to these same people now here as unstable and how they twist the words of Paul to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Did you catch that? So here's Peter referring to the writings of Paul, these letters that are circulating, and he's, he's saying, hey, like some of the things in them are hard to understand. I get that. But be warned, there are gonna, people are going to try to twist the words of Paul just like they do the other scriptures. So already Peter is acknowledging, like long before the New Testament is canonized, that the writings of Paul are actually part of the scriptures. He's giving them the same weight as he does the scriptures themselves of the Old Testament. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so what we're going to do is just look at these things that Peter mentions around the scriptures then. What does Peter say about the Bible, and what does he say about the authors who wrote it, and is it actually reliable, and should we consider it as more than just a letter from Paul? And so we'll back up then to 1 Peter in chapter 1. This was one of the first places that Peter mentions anything about the Scriptures. We'll start in verse 10. And uh, Peter has just laid out this beautiful overview of our salvation, being born again into this living hope. And then he says in verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So Peter goes to great length, um, if you'll pay attention to his writings, to distinguish between the Old Testament and what would become the New Testament writings of the apostles. And here he's referring to the prophets, so he's referring to the Old Testament. Testament. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets of the Old Testament who prophesied, they prophesied about what? The grace that was to be yours. So this grace that you now have in Jesus 
it was actually prophesied about in the Old Testament. So if you'll read the Old Testament and pay attention to what the prophets are saying, they're going to be pointing you forward to a grace that is to come. Then he goes on to say this, that, they, that this grace was to be yours and that they searched and inquired carefully. This is important. So we think about these authors of the Old Testament Scripture. They weren't just, you know, writing from a flow of consciousness or flippantly and, oh, I got a good idea, this will be helpful. Like they were diligently searching the heart of God and asking questions. They were inquiring of God. God, what would you have me write? So these prophets who were prophesying about the grace of Jesus were carefully searching and inquiring. And what were they inquiring? Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories. So here the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ in them. And they were inquiring, they were praying, they were searching the mind and the heart of God, asking, what will this rescuer be like? What will, what will identify the Messiah? How will we know it's him and when is he coming? They would pray that and then they would write. He's talking about guys like Isaiah as he's writing about this coming Messiah. That Again, it wasn't like Isaiah was in a hypnotic trance and God just put a pencil in his hand and he just started like writing and, oh, look at that. There are words on a paper and they mean something. No, Isaiah was actively leaning into that. He was asking God, let me write something down that will point the people to you. He was doing this carefully as the Spirit of Christ in him, in them, was indicating and predicting the sufferings of Christ. Verse 12 says that it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. So the Holy Spirit stirred that up in them that their words were meant to like be read by you and be, to be read by me. in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Listen to this, the things into which angels long to look. That takes the words of these biblical authors and puts them in a pretty high place, doesn't it? That as the prophets, Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah and others prayed and diligently searched the heart of God for what they should write down that would benefit us what Peter is saying is that God's revealed some things to them, secret things, things that were, that were the angels longed to look into. Like they actually had more insight than the angels on the things that they wrote down. This is more than just the words of men or the perspective of men. It helps me understand why some of the things are hard to understand. Right? As, as a human reader, I'm going to need supernatural help to understand things that the angels don't even know. And so Peter's describing that process through the Old Testament prophets. If you jump down now to 2 Peter chapter 1. So we were in 1 Peter 1. Now we'll go to 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Ken read this one earlier. It says, For we, so the we here. Peter is referring to himself and the other apostles. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you 
the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So even back then, some of the same questions and doubts were being raised by the culture around them. Can we trust the stories of the Bible? Can we trust the words of this book? Are they not just cleverly devised myths? And so Peter is going to build the case that, in fact, they aren't cleverly devised myths. And he says this, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I want to pause here for a minute. So when we think about that first question I raised earlier is, is this, how accurate is today's translation of the Bible? Really, we could ask that about any historical book, right? If it was from over a thousand years ago, before we had Microsoft Word with copy, paste, and spell check, we need to ask how reliable is this document? If we have a writing from Augustine, is this actually his words, or did somebody write it and then attribute it to him? And there's a whole field of study around this called textual criticism that gets applied to any historical book. Okay, Christian or non-Christian. And I'm not, a, I'm not a textual critic, nor am I a biblical scholar, but out, those even outside of our faith will hold the Bible up as an incredibly faithful historical document on three accounts. One, it's comparison to other historical documents about the events that it describes and writes about. Number two, when it's compared to archaeological artifacts and digs. There have been times where scholars try to disprove the Bible and say it's, it's talking about something that we, we can't find in, in archaeology, and then we'll discover something in archaeology and go, oh, it turns out that one was in the Bible. That one was true. That one was right. But the other account has to do with this idea of we don't have any of the original manuscripts. We don't have Peter's words on a page all we have are copies. So how reliable is this book? Can we actually trust it? Again, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I'll give you some data points. The Bible was written from over 40 authors. Three different continents, three different languages, spanning over 1,600 years in terms of when the first documents were written to the end. That's 1,600 years. And yet it's incredibly consistent with itself, incredibly consistent with history and archaeology. And when you read it from cover to cover, it reads like a meta-narrative. Like it spans the intentions, of, even if there was an author who was like, I'm going to write down this fantastic myth to explain the universe and lead people astray. Like his contribution was such a small sliver to the big story that it couldn't have happened. And from Genesis to Revelation, we find this incredibly intricately woven story of God's redemption for us. And when you look at other historical documents, you may have done some of this work before. I'll just give you some little data points. Other authors, even dating kind of the same time as the Old Testament, would be guys like Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar wrote um, about the Gaelic Wars. Now, he wrote it from his perspective, and he made himself look really good. So historians will question the accuracy of the data, but they don't question the authenticity of whether or not we have his words. Now, and here's, here's, the, here's how old that is. 
So the, the Gaelic Wars was written around 58 to 50 B.C. And we have 10 manuscripts, 10 copies in our possession that we can go to. So we have 10 copies. Listen to this. And those 10 copies are not 900 years older than the original. Are you following that math? So textual critics will look at these copies, these 10 copies, even though they're 900 years, they were copied 900 years after the original, and apply textual criticism to it, go, you know what? We've got a good handle on what the original document said. You take uh, Homer's writings, the Iliad. The Iliad was written around 800 B.C., 800 years before Christ. We have 643 manuscripts that are dated to 400 B.C., so 400 years after the original was written, and we got like 643 of those copies, and so we can, we can comb through them and compare them for accuracy and consistency and apply some type of scientific method to get to a place of determining whether or not it was reliable. So textual critics will say that the version of the Iliad we have today is 95% accurate to the original documents. Now, that's pretty good. Well, what about the Scriptures themselves? Here's some data points on the Scriptures. So the New Testament, written in the first century, okay? So written in the first century, we're reading out of Peter's letter here we have 5600 copies we can refer to that are within 100 years of the original written document now is that a hundred percent guarantee no so textual critics outside of the faith will say that the the documents the copies we have are 99.5 percent accurate when compared to the original documents they, themselves. They are that confident. Non-Christians will say, the Greek manuscripts we have that are copies of copies of copies of the New Testament are within 99.5% accurate. Now here's the thing. Peter isn't appealing to textual criticism as the validation of his works. He is appealing to this truth that he claims that he was an eye witness so beyond textual criticism he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's telling us the truth and his appeal to us plainly written is this we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty and then he's going to record one of those moments. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter could have appealed to a lot of different moments in his journey with Christ. He could have said, remember whenever that story about walking on water? Yeah, I was there. It was my hand that he reached down and grabbed and pulled up. I literally walked on water with this guy. He could have appealed to that. He could have appealed to the resurrection itself. I was there in the upper room when the door was closed, and he walked through the door and showed us his hands and his feet. Like, I saw it. I saw the risen Christ. He could have mentioned what Luke recorded in Acts 1 where Christ ascended. 
I was there. I, was, I, was, I heard his voice, and I saw the heavens open up, and I literally saw him ascend. But he's appealing to what we would call the transfiguration, a really sweet and special moment where Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the holy mountain, and he transfigured before them and allowed them for just a moment to see his glory. So he's saying, either I was there or I wasn't. You still have to believe whether, decide whether or not you believe me, but I'm giving you a first-hand eye account witness of this one called Jesus. I'm only writing what I saw with my own eyes. And this would come to be the validation of all the New Testament authors. Outside the author of Hebrews, we don't fully know who that is. There's arguments about whether or not that's Paul or others. Again, textual criticism. But the New Testament is full of first-hand, I account witnesses. And that's what Peter's saying. I was there. So you can either believe me or not, but I'm only telling you what I saw myself. And by the way, it's, it's not, if it were mythology, it is a horrible, horribly written mythology. It's not clever at all. Two reasons. I'll, I'll start with the lighter-hearted one first. One, it's full of descriptions of godly people doing ungodly things. The primary author of the New Testament, Paul, calls himself a chief of sinners. And he's trying to discredit himself. It's incredibly honest. Genesis talks about this righteous man, Noah, who is he's spared in the flood because of his righteousness. righteousness. Him and his family... You know what happens after the flood? His children go looking for him and they find him passed out drunk and without any clothes on in a tent. Just shamefully. You got, you got polygamy in the Old Testament, even though God clearly says, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. One wife, one husband, marriage. The Bible doesn't clean and whitewash all these stories. You got a guy in the New Testament who preaches too long and a kid falls out of a window and dies. I mean, if we're scrubbing, let's scrub that one out. But it's incredibly honest and vulnerable and it's not clever from that sense. It's a horrible piece of propaganda. Or it's written incredibly accurate and vulnerable and honest and real. I mean, the times that John sells out Peter and his gospel, surely they had a conversation about this. I can just see Peter going to John and going, hey, John, couldn't you leave that part out where you outran me to the tomb? You had to put in there that you showed up first. Seriously, why is that important? How about that denying Jesus three times? Couldn't we just say, yes, it happened? Do you have to describe it? I feel a little exposed here. And then the second point I was going to make that's a little deeper is like Peter's saying, hey, some of the things Paul's writing are hard to understand. There are tensions in the scripture. And the Bible doesn't, the authors aren't seeking to remove that tension for us, but leaving it there. I'll give you an example, the tension between the sovereign will of God and the free will of man. That tension's in the scriptures. There's a reason why we debate over this kind of thing. If it's cleverly written, let's just figure that one out, can we? Before we send this off into the 21st century and like make it all line up and clean. And like, I would say this to you. If, you. if you wrestle with that tension of 
the will of God versus the will of man, and maybe you've landed and you say, well, I'm a, I'm a Calvinist or I'm an Arminian. Can I just, can I just invite you to, to let the tension stay there anyway? The tension's supposed to be there. It's not a conflict within itself. It's a tension in there. When Paul's talking about Pharaoh being risen up for the purposes of God, and you read about what he did to God's people, like that's a tension, isn't it? And so, yeah, the, the writings of Paul are hard to understand because those tensions are there. Not conflict, but tensions. Otherwise, Pe- Peter would have said it. That Paul, he's full of it. Right? That Paul, man, he'll really confuse you because he doesn't know what he's talking about. But here's, here's the real answer. He just leaves the tension there. And so it is an incredibly honest, vulnerable document, and it is not... It doesn't meet the criteria of cleverly written as a myth. And so, we continue reading in 2 Peter 1. Peter's going to say this. He's already referred to the prophetic word that was written in the Old Testament. He said, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We already believed it, but now something has happened that more fully confirms it for us. And to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter's saying, hey, this word that we already believe, we were already in on it. I was a committed Old Testament believer, but now in Christ, I actually am more, I'm more in now. It's been more fully confirmed and you would do well to pay attention to it. Well, in what way? In the midst of darkness. It will serve you like a light. You ever been in a dark room and needed a light? Like it's hard to accomplish anything else until the light comes on. You've ever been out in the woods when it's dark and you're like, you needed a light? And so he's saying, yeah, you have a light as you walk through this present darkness of the fallen world. You have a light. You would do well to pay attention to this light because we have the prophets more fully confirmed. And now he's going to explain some things. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretations. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, or you could say wrote, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to back into this now. How is the prophetic word more confidently confirmed? through Jesus. Well, the Gospel of Matthew, the, the Gospel writer Matthew, as he's um, writing down the Sermon on the Mount, and right after Jesus teaches through the Beatitudes, blessed are those who, he captures something that Jesus taught there in, in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17. This was Jesus' perspective on the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament authors. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So anybody who's tempted to take your Old Testament and throw it away now because I'm here, don't do that. I have not come to take the place of the Old Testament. I have not come to give you a word or a teaching that will take the place of the Old Testament. Don't do away with it. Matter of fact, I just come to fulfill it. If anything, hold on to it more tightly now that the prophets have now been fulfilled. So I have not come 
to abolish it, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, which we talked about that last week, not one iota, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it all is what? Accomplished. I haven't come so you could throw your Old Testament away and go, look, Jesus is here. Like, I've actually come to be a fulfillment of the Old Testament, that you would hold even more tightly to it. And not one iota, not one dot will pass away until when? Until the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. There's an interesting place in the Gospel of Luke. Luke records the resurrection of Jesus in great detail, and there's two primary accounts that he records. One is where Jesus, um, he comes up next to two disciples who are walking to Emmaus. You may be familiar with this story. This is Luke 24. So you've got a couple disciples who were like leaving Jerusalem, headed to Emmaus, and they're pretty heartbroken because Jesus has been killed. And so they're still kind of sitting in the sorrow of that, and they're, they're downtrodden around that, and they're, they're struggling with what happened, and how did that happen? Like, we thought he was the one, and so Jesus comes alongside them. <laughs> it's, it's great irony. And he begins to walk with them and talk with them, and they don't even know it's him. They're so grieved over his death they don't even recognize that it's him, which tells us they're not expecting to see him, right? And so he begins to talk with them, and then in Luke 24, verse 25, he calls them out. And he says this to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The problem right now is, is not that you didn't believe that I was the Messiah. The problem is that you didn't believe everything that the prophets wrote. The prophets actually wrote that I was going to die, and now you're sad because I died, and you don't recognize that I actually resurrected. Foolish one, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, according to what? The prophets, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? If Christ wouldn't have suffered the prophecy of Isaiah would have been null and void. Right? If God had changed his mind, said, nah, never mind. Hey, that whole suffering part where you're going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter and by your stripes we will be healed. Let's do it a different way. Then we would have been left with the prophecy of Isaiah going, wait, did God change his mind? And so Jesus is just pointing it out for these two guys. Like, wasn't it necessary that everything written about the Christ be fulfilled? He says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the Old Testament, the things concerning him. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And Peter is saying, because he fulfilled it, we have the, the prophets more confidently confirmed now. What we already held on to is valuable and inspired and the word of God. Now we just know that we know it. We knew it before, but now we know we know it. He says this, to which you would all do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, and this is going to be really important. You want to know what the Bible says about itself? No prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what the Bible is saying is that the Holy Spirit was there with the prophets, 
We'll talk about this in more detail in a minute. Writing, Jesus comes and fulfills all that the prophets wrote about. So in that same chapter of Luke, after he opens the eyes of these two disciples, he then goes into the upper room with the 11, because Judas is out, and the door is shut, and Luke's like, it's like he just walked through the door. And the resurrected Christ appeared to the disciples, and Peter was in that room. And I want you to hear what Jesus says to now these disciples. This is later on in Luke 24, starting in verse 44. Then he said to them, these are the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Not only were these things written in the prophets, I talked to you about these things before they happened. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Every one of them. Then he opened their minds to understand what? The Bible. He did the same thing with the two disciples going to Emmaus. He flipped through the Old Testament stories. He probably just spoke it from memory and said, hey guys, remember when this happened in the Old Testament? Remember when this prophet said this? That was about me. And he pointed to a place in his life where that was fulfilled. Remember when this was said and the prophet said this about the Messiah who was to come and Jesus points to his own life and goes, see how I fulfilled that? Remember how Isaiah said that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant and he would be like one who was despised and everybody would turn their heads from him. He's like, hey, remember what happened at the cross? That was, about, that was about me. Remember how Isaiah wrote that by the, the stripes of the Messiah, you would be healed? Yeah, that, that, was, that was me. That was, I did that. And he pointed to all these prophecies about himself and opened up their eyes to the scriptures. So we begin to understand what Peter says when he says that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed now through Christ. Let's look at what Paul says about the scriptures. This is in 2 Timothy. He's writing to Timothy, a pastor, an elder in the church. In chapter 3, he says this to Timothy. So Timothy was raised in a household where his mom and his grandma taught him the sacred writings and the scriptures. So Timothy was familiar with the Old Testament because his mom and his grandma taught him. And so Paul's writing this to Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you learned and have firmly believed. You believe this from a little boy. He said, continue in that, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The wisdom of the scriptures is not so that you would become wise unto yourself, that you would be revered in the world as a wise person. The wisdom of the scriptures is meant to lead you to salvation. If anything, it leads you away from being prideful and puffed up and wise, but to a place of humility. And the wisdom of the Scripture leads you to humility, which leads you to the gospel. And he says this, so pay attention. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That is a supernatural claim. Even as the Apostle Paul is writing what would become the New Testament, he says, please understand, the words of Scripture are breathed out from God Himself. And they are useful, 
profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This phrase, all Scripture is breathed out by God, was explained by Peter when he said this, no Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So what happened? How did we get our Bible? How did we get these scriptures? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to explain this piece of it now. Each biblical author that sat down to write had a reason for sitting down to write. Something was stirring in their hearts and in their minds. Nobody sat down, as I mentioned already, in a hypnotic trance with a pencil in their hand and just let the Holy Spirit guide their hand like a Ouija board and ended up with these writings that we call the Bible. Each author sat down with something in mind. We already read Peter talking about how they were inquiring of the Lord carefully. God, give us a description of the Messiah. Tell us what is to be. And so they're writing these things down. Well, what is Peter saying happened then? What is Paul describing as God breathed is that the Holy Spirit of God, as each author sat down to write, the Holy Spirit of God superintended his intentions, his will on the will of man. The hand of God on the hand of Peter. The heart of God on the heart of Peter. The mind of God on the mind of Peter. This is what we refer to as superintended. Peter had a reason, he had an intention, and the Holy Spirit of God superintended. I'll give you an example that just, just helps me so much. So in Genesis chapter 50, this is the story of Joseph, and that's actually at the end when things get better. If you know the story of Joseph, he's sold out and mistreated brutally by his brothers. Like, they were super evil against him. Super evil. More than just like sibling rivalry kind of stuff. They sell him into slavery. And so at the end of the story, there's a turn where now they're in desperate need and they have to come to Joseph and beg for mercy. They need food. They need help. And they recognize their brother is actually the one who holds the keys to their help. And so they repent. And they say, oh, please forgive us for the way we treated you. And it's Joseph's response that's so helpful. As Joseph sits there in that moment with his brothers in front of him who had committed evil against him, they're asking forgiveness. And he says these words. He says, what you intended as evil against me, God intended for good. How does that work? He's saying, while you were there in your envy, in your evil against me, your desire to kill me and sell me off, like all your intentions were evil, and yet, this is how amazing God is. His hand, his heart, his mind superintended your will and brought good out of it. That does not excuse your behavior. It was still evil. But God superintended it and turned it into my good. Now, if God can do that through evil brothers, take that same concept now and apply it to biblical authors who are inquiring carefully of the Lord. They're praying and they're begging God to reveal himself and they're writing down carefully what he says. And God is doing the same thing. He's taking whatever their intentions were and he's superintending. He's laying over the top his intentions. And the Holy Spirit of God is guiding their hands, their hearts, and their minds as they write down these words that would become our sacred scriptures. That is the claim of the Bible. 
It's not the claim of science. It's not the claim of the latest, greatest thoughts of our day and time. This is the claim of the Bible. One other example, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, John, the gospel writer, I mentioned him earlier. I love that he's so clear about what his intentions were. This highlights the idea that authors sat down with a purpose. At the end of his gospel, he says this in, in verse tw- uh, chapter 20, verse 30. He says, remember, he's already written his, his gospel. He's just got a few more words left. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. So as he's wrapping up his gospel, he's like, hey, just know there were a ton more things I could have written in here. But these are written, here's my intention, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that is not only John's intention, that is the intention of the Holy Spirit. John sat down with a purpose, and the Holy Spirit laid that purpose over the top of his. That by reading the words that John wrote, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, you might have life in his name. And so here's how we would wrap up our perspective on the Bible as a church. We do believe that the Bible is inspired. It is supernatural. We believe that there's a component to the words in your Bible that point to God himself as the author. We don't discredit the intent of the the biblical authors, but we're looking at this meta-narrative and God himself as the author. The second thing we would say is that it is inerrant. It is without error. Specifically in the original text. And the translations that we use to get the English translation today, non-Christian textual critics would say are 99.5% exactly accurate to the original text. So we would say those original texts are without any error. And that 0.5% from textual critics, again, non-Christians would say even those things that could possibly be, you know, just a small, slight misspelling of something are so small that they don't change the meaning of anything. No theology changes, no meaning changes in that 0.5%. That all the things that really, really matter are preserved 100% accurate. And so we believe it is inspired, we believe in the original documents are inerrant, and we believe that it is infallible, meaning that it accomplishes everything that it sets out to accomplish. All the claims of the Bible come true. Nothing is written where God changed his mind or couldn't pull it off. It's infallible, meaning it accomplishes everything it sets out to accomplish. Now, at the end of the day, we've only answered two questions. How accurate is today's translation? It's extremely accurate. What does the Bible say about itself? We just answered that, that it's inspired, it's infallible, and it's inerrant. But that still leaves us with a really important question. Is there anything really supernatural about the Bible? And this is where you have to choose to believe. It's a choice you have to make. We're done with left-brain cognitive exercises on the reliability of the Scriptures. And you're simply left with this question. Do you believe it? Because at the end of the day, it is a step of faith. Peter is not trying to answer all your questions so you don't have to have faith. Nor is Paul or any other biblical authors. At the end of the day, it is a promise 
that you, as an individual person, your parents can't answer this for you, your grandparents can't answer this for you, I can't answer it for you. Do you actually believe it? So I want to leave you with what I believe to be one of the most beautiful descriptions of the scriptures. Psalm 19. The psalmist writes this, describing the word, the word of God. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. And I want you to listen to this. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. I mean, what a statement of faith. At the end of the day, this isn't, this isn't a, a, a cognitive issue. This is a question of the heart. Do you believe that the scriptures are reliable? You've got to answer that question. Do you believe the promises that are contained in the Bible? You have to answer that question. I want to read this last little summary as really more of a prayer for us. This is what I hope for us as a church. As we read, study, and apply the scriptures to our lives, that we would encounter the living God in relationship and thereby experience real transformation. So therefore, let us hold fast to the unchanging word of God, allowing it to shape our thoughts, actions, and character. May we be people who are diligently in study and embrace the truth that's revealed in Scripture, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, may it guide us into a deeper relationship with our loving and faithful God. If your approach to the Bible is to become a Bible scholar or to become smarter, you're going to miss the whole intent. We diligently study the Bible because we long to be with God. We give ourselves to reading the Bible and wrestling with it because we long to see God. This is the window, the means by which he has chosen to reveal himself to us, but we don't have to guess. So here's our statement of faith. I'll just read this to you in case you're new here. Our perspective on the Bible is this. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors, inspired and superintended by God. The Bible is without error in the original writings. It is the complete and infallible revelation of God's will for redemption and sufficient as the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, trusted in all that it promises, and obeyed in all that it requires. So at Solid Rock Church, we affirm and teach from all modern translations that strive to be faithful to the original writings. We don't endorse just one translation. We would say, we would, we would read, we would study, we would teach from any translation that's striving 
to be faithful to the original text. And so I want to leave you with some questions to think about. First of all, I just want to encourage you, this, this first question will probably be easy for you to answer, but hard to share with somebody. So I'm not only asking you to think about it internally, but as you think about the answer to this question, maybe even think about somebody you could share this with. What struggles do you have with believing and trusting the Bible? You may have come in today and you're like, dude, I got the Bible tattooed on my arm. I got it tattooed on my heart. I am all in. And today just double down on everything I already believe. Fantastic. High fives and hugs all around. For those who may have come in today with some struggles and some doubts, like everything we hold dear as a church hinges on whether or not that's trustworthy. And so those, those doubts may still be there. Would you just take a minute to think about it? Would you give them a name? What are your struggles? What do you struggle with? What struggles do you have with believing that the Bible is trustworthy? And then here's the next part. I would encourage you to share that with somebody. Satan is going to tell you not to, that if you share that, you're going to be shamed and condemned, and that's not true. I want to encourage you to share your struggles and doubts with God and with another believer. Second thing is this. Do you believe that the Bible is truly inspired by the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that it's supernatural or is it simply just a historical work for you? A reference guide, a suggestion guide, or like, do you truly see it as like sacred, supernatural Holy Scriptures? Here's another question. How much authority does the Bible have in your life? Here's a sad reality. And this is true of church history. Too many times the authority of the church supersedes the authority of the Bible. Bad things happen when that happens. Same thing's true in our lives, though, when the authority of our own perspective supersedes the authority of the Bible. And so that's the question. Is like, where does the Bible rank in terms of authority in your life? And then last one, and this is in reference to the psalm that I read, Psalm 19. How much value does the Bible have in your heart? Do you truly long for the Bible like gold? Does it have more value in your life than even the most precious things in life? Like honey dripping from a cone or fine gold. What value does the Bible have in your heart? I want to leave you with that today. So as we wrap up Second Peter and wrap up this time together on the scriptures, um, I want to leave us with a couple things. One, if you need to talk to somebody today, our pastors and elders will be available to talk with you after the service. Um, you may be in a rush and not have time. That's fine. You can stop by the welcome desk, get some contact info, and let us know. But if you have time and you want to stop and talk with an elder or pastor, they'll be the ones wearing lanyards. We know who we are. Um, prayer partners will be at the front. Maybe you just want to bring whatever struggle you have or thing that's on your mind and bring it to somebody. Say, hey, we just pray over this without trying to fix me or give me I just need somebody to pray over this. Would you take this before the throne for me? And our prayer partners would be honored to do that with you today. You can stay seated as well. And the invitation is not that you would have it all figured out and you'd have all your theology figured out, but the invitation is simple. What are you going to do with Jesus today? We already know what he's done with the scriptures. What are you going to do with him? If you've never put your, tr your trust, your faith in him and him alone for salvation, that's the invitation today. You do that seated where you are, come grab one of us we'll pray with you but that's the invitation of God come and seek and you will find come and take what I offer and you will have it come to me in faith and you will have all that is mine
you'll have my love, my forgiveness, my grace, my mercy for all eternity. So I'm going to pray for us now as we get ready to respond. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and how it anchors our souls. Just thinking about what Paul said in Ephesians, how when we aren't anchored, our lives are tossed to and fro like ships out on a rough, turbulent ocean without an anchor. I'm so thankful that we can tether our lives to something that is static. It doesn't change. It is imperishable. Father, the scriptures aren't meant to be worshipped, but they lead us into a relationship with you where, God, our our worship is, is aimed at the right things. The scriptures aren't to be adored more than we adore you, but when we read them and we place value in them, they, they increase our adoration for you. As a church, that's our prayer, God, that our perspective on the Bible would not simply be lip service or some statement we put on our website, but it would be a reality in our daily lives. That your word would be more valuable to us than gold, even fine gold. God, anybody here that doesn't know you, Today may be that first day to believe the promise that you so love the world that you gave your only son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. Maybe today is that day, God, for somebody to take that step of faith and believe the promise of John 3.16 as a starting point into this amazing relationship we have with you. So, Father, would you send your spirit now to work in us, to stir in us, to move us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.